0: Well, if you haven't heard, Christmas is coming. Christmas is almost here. And as we have been celebrating Advent with you, we have been savoring some of our favorite Christmas songs. These are Christmas songs that are packed with theology, with good theology. And so we've decided to unpack some of the biblical insights that are in the lyrics of these wonderful Christmas carols. And today, we are going to spend some time in the little town of Bethlehem. We're led there by the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. This Christmas carol begins, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Wow, these opening lines just immediately take me to Bethlehem and I imagine the star of Bethlehem just shining over the manger. And we can find this birth narrative in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. Don't go to Luke, that's where the shepherds are invited by the angels. Matthew is where we hear of the Magi traveling from the east following a star. If you remember Magi, think of Matthew and you'll always know where to look for the star. So let's start there, reading from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Listen to the word of the Lord. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you Bethlehem. In the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, "'Go and search diligently for the child. "'And when you have found him, bring me word "'so that I may go and pay him homage.' "'So when they had heard this from the king, they set out. "'And there ahead of them went the star "'that they had seen at its rising "'until it stopped over the place where the child was. "'When they saw that the star had stopped, "'they were overwhelmed with joy.' On entering the house, the manger, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So this is the birth account in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, because Matthew mentions the prophet specifically, I want us to turn there as well. Now, this is the prophet Micah. That Matthew is quoting. And just if you're in your Bibles and you're trying to find it, I'm going to share with you, stop for a second and share with you a little trick that uh, has helped me remember how and where to find all of the prophets that are in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, when I was little, my mom taught me a trick of how to remember the first 16 presidents of the United States by remembering the first or first and second syllable of their last name. And so we have Washi Ed Jeffy, Maddie Monroe, at Jackson Van Hare, Pite- Pytope. So I took this device and tried it out with the prophets in the Old Testament. And so we have Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then we have Eze Dan, Hosey, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Joe, my name, Habakkuk, Zeph Zek, Malachi. So if you're looking for Micah, you can hear Eze Dan, Hosey, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Joe, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah is to the right of Jonah and the left of Nahum. And there you have it. So if you want to find Micah, I'm going to begin reading in chapter five, verse two. Listen to this messianic prophecy. Micah says, speaking the word of the Lord, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. You see, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. He was a prophet in 8th. 8th century BC, 750 years before Jesus was born, Micah was prophesying at a time that the 10 northern tribes of Israel were being attacked and captured and deported by the Assyrians. In 722, the northern kingdoms fell entirely, and those 10 tribes of Israel were never heard from back in that land again. Those are the lost 10 tribes of Israel. And so it's in this context that the word of the Lord comes to Micah, speaking of one who will come from God and who will rule in Israel. And this one will come from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a little town in the millennia before Jesus' birth, and it's still a little town today. Bethlehem never had the razzmatazz of her sister city, Jerusalem, that was just a few miles to the north. You know, if anything, Bethlehem served Jerusalem because it was in Bethlehem that the sheep, the lambs that were purchased and sacrificed in the temple of Jerusalem, those sheep and lambs were raised in Bethlehem by shepherds attending to their flocks. This ancient little town of Bethlehem was originally a Canaanite city that was conquered by the Jews when they first swept into the promised land by the hand of God. Many scholars believe the Canaanite name of the city was Epaphratha. And Epaphratha means either fruitful or worthless, depending on the context in which it's used. So if you're a Canaanite, either something fruitful or worthless happened in the city of Ephratha. Later, it's believed that a Jewish name was given to this little town and that Jewish name was Bethlehem. Now Beth is the Jewish word for house and Lachem is the Jewish word for bread. So Bethlehem is the house of bread. And so we ponder Bethlehem. Before we get to the lyrics of the song, we need to consider the meaning of the place. Why Bethlehem? I mean, seriously, of all the mangers and all the towns in all the world, Mary walks into this one and gives birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why Bethlehem? Is there an overarching narrative in the scriptures that, that speak of Bethlehem? Does it have a theme? Does it have a tone? What is the witness in the world of Bethlehem? You know how some cities are known for battles that have been fought there or for the wealth and power that's accumulated there or, or even for the beautiful landscapes or cityscapes. When we press into scripture, when we look into scripture for what Bethlehem holds, I believe that we can find that Bethlehem is the setting of three great love stories. It's the setting of a love story that is cut short, a love that covers, and the love of a king. So let's look at these love stories that come to us from Bethlehem. The first, a love cut short, is the love that Jacob had for Rachel. Now Jacob was one of the patriarchs of ancient Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob had needed to travel back to the land of his ancestors to find a wife. And when he first got there, he laid eyes on Rachel. And it was like a cartoon is how like, wow. And he loved her. Genesis 29, 18 says he loved her. And so he finds her father, Laban, and says, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, we can work that out. If you work here for seven years, you know, till my fields and do, uh, take care of my, my shepherds and my flocks, I'll give you the hand of Rachel. Do we have a deal? And, and yeah, Jacob said, yes, we have a deal. And so Genesis 29, 20 says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Do you know that right there, that describes the theory of relativity? Einstein described the theory of relativity as being, if you have your hand on a hot stove, one minute is an eternity. But if you are sitting on a park bench with someone that you love, one minute is not nearly enough. And so seven years seemed to Jacob like nothing because of the love he had for Rachel— and yet at the last minute, Laban tricked him and Jacob ended up marrying the elder sister Leah and, and he had to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel. 14 years of hard service in order to marry his heart's true love and they finally got married. They first had a son named Joseph. Joseph, Joseph of the Technicolor Dream Coat. What an awesome kid Joseph was. And his father, Jacob, loved him. Loved him Aben enough to make all the other boys jealous. And after Rachel and Jacob had been married about 15 or 20 years, Rachel got pregnant again. But at this time, Jacob and his whole household needed to move. And so now we're talking uh, about the time 1750 B.C., 1,750 years before the birth of Christ, a pregnant Rachel and her husband are traveling south on the road to Bethlehem. A pregnant woman traveling with her husband to the road to Bethlehem. And this is where we hear the story of what happens next. In Genesis 35, starting in verse 16, scripture reads, then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrathah, or Bethlehem, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had a difficult labor. When she was in her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. A love cut short. Rachel dies in childbirth. Now, we know that in Genesis three nineteen, after Adam and Eve sinned, there was a curse that was spoken over Adam and Eve, a curse that is part of all of humanity. And the curse spoken over Eve is that she would have great pain and difficulty in childbirth. Rachel is the first woman named in the Bible who dies in childbirth. And so we are given a picture of what it is like to live under the curse, the curse that all humanity lives under to this very day. Rachel was not far from Bethlehem when she died. And so Jacob gathered her and bought a tomb and laid her to rest. And to this very day, this day, the tomb of Rachel marks the northern entrance to the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a city of a love that was cut short. Now, about five hundred years pass. We get to about twelve eighty three B.C. Before another love story is given birth in Bethlehem, we first hear of Ruth, a Moabite woman, and his and her Israeli mother-in-law Naomi. The first love that we hear about in the Book of Ruth is the love that Ruth has for her mother-in-law, Naomi. So let's turn to this story. You see, Naomi was from Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem figures heavily in the setting of this love story. Reading from Ruth, beginning in chapter one, listen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. And so the story unfolds that Naomi had no reason to stay in Moab. She yearned for Bethlehem from where she was from. She yearned for the God of Israel. And so she said goodbye to her daughters-in-law. Bid them stay with their families, with their gods. And Orpah said goodbye to Naomi. But listen to what Ruth said to Naomi. In Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Ruth says, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Oh my goodness. This is a story of a love of two women. And so we're told that Naomi and Ruth together travel back to Bethlehem and they arrive at the time of the barley harvest. Now, Naomi and Ruth had nothing of their own. They were two widows in a patriarchal society. And so Ruth figures out that she can go to one of the fields of one of the kinsmen of Elimelech and kind of in a quiet way, she can glean the harvest, which means that pick up the scraps of what was left from the harvesters. So Ruth slips into this field that's owned by Boaz, the kinsman of Elimelech. And she gathers enough barley to feed herself and Naomi day after day. Listen to what is uh, what uh, Boaz says to her when he discovers that she's been gleaning in his fields. She's a little afraid, and Boaz says to her, "'All that you have done for your mother-in-law "'since the death of your husband "'has been fully told to me, "'and how you left your father and mother "'and your native land "'and came to a people that you did not know before.'" May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. You see, the story of the love in the book of Ruth is a story of a love that covers you see, Ruth and Naomi both had been left exposed by their lost, left vulnerable to the world. And yet here, Boaz paints the image of God spreading out his wings over Ruth, over Naomi, of providing refuge and shelter, a covering, a love that covers them. But that's not where the story stops. Uh, Naomi tells Ruth, go in and lie at the feet of Boaz. After the harvest, all the men sleep by what they've harvested. So go in, don't make up make any noise, just lay down at his feet. And you'll know what to do when it happens next. And so we come to Ruth chapter two, uh, actually chapter three. And Ruth is there at the feet of Boaz, who is asleep, and in the middle of the night, Boaz stirs and realizes that someone's sleeping at his feet. It's dark, he can't tell it who it is. And he says, who are you? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. Would you put your cloak over me? Because I am your kin. And here we have the second covering. And listen to what Boaz says when this request, this proposal is made to him from Ruth. Boaz says... May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. And so it comes to pass that Boaz marries Ruth in this love that covers, and they have many children. They give birth to a son named Obed, who gives birth to a son named Jesse, who gives birth to a son named David. The story of Bethlehem, as we receive it through Ruth, tells the story of a place that invites the outcast in, that invites her to make a home there, that makes a way where there is no way, that lays the foundation for a future and a hope. This is the love that covers in the story of Ruth. But now we've mentioned David, so let's go to the love of a king. The love that David had for his God. Now this wasn't always a perfect love. David was a man becoming a king, a boy becoming a man. But David's love for God was always earnest. And, and in his heart that was oriented toward God, God was able to form him to be the king of Israel that God wanted for his people. And so we're going to turn over to 1 Samuel and the story of David. So Saul has been the first king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And Saul wasn't a very good king. So I'm going to start reading in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so we're told that Samuel does what he was commanded by God to do, And it says, Samuel went and came to Bethlehem. And so we know that David is a Bethlehemite. This one, this son of Jesse and Obed, he lived around 1000 BC, 1000 years before the birth of Christ. In Bethlehem, David was anointed to be king by Samuel. Let's read that. Reading in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. So he goes and he meets up with Jesse, and he says, I'm here to meet your sons. Do you have any? And Jesse says, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of them. Uh, he had eight sons altogether, and and there's the parade of Jesse's sons. And the very first one that comes out, Eliab, was wow, like Samuel was getting ready to anoint him. But the Lord said, stop. No, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Eliab passed through and six more sons passed through. And then there weren't any more. And Samuel said, do you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, yeah, there's David, the kid, my youngest one, he's out in the fields right now with the sheep, do you want me to get him? And Samuel's like, yeah, I think you better go get him. So so David comes in. And when Samuel sees David, listen to what the Lord says to Samuel. Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon David. Now, David still has a long way to go to become the king of Israel. His story is a vast story in the Hebrew scriptures. It goes all the way from 1 Samuel through 1 Chronicles. And I want to zero in, though, on a defining moment that happens just outside of Bethlehem, a moment that will define the king that David is to be. You see, after David was anointed by Samuel, it didn't mean that others recognized him as king of Israel. He hadn't been crowned by the people yet. And David was on the run from Saul. Saul was still king at this time. And so David had to run, trying not to be killed by Saul. And he also had to try to not be killed by the Philistines, the enemies of all of Israel. The arch enemies were at every turn, and so a number of mighty men gathered around David We're told that these were men that were loyal to David. They did recognize him as their leader. They swore their allegiance to him, their fealty to him. These men would do anything for David. They would even die for David. And so in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 23, 13 through 17, is telling the story of some of these mighty men, but it has great consequence for what happens in David's heart. Listen to this story, 2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. It says, towards the beginning of harvest, Three of the 30 chiefs, now the chiefs are of these mighty men, these warriors that are with David. Three of these chiefs went down to join David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. So let's just pause there for a minute. So David has been hounded for years by people trying to kill him. He's been having to run all over the place. He's been traveling all over the place. And all of a sudden, he finds himself right across the way from where he grew up. He's probably remembering his boyhood, the the fields that he used to be in, the, the bear that he killed with his own hands. He's remembering his anointing by Samuel. And he can see the well. He can remember how sweet the water of that well at Bethlehem was. And so he just sighs and said, oh, gosh, I wish I had a drink from that well. Well... These three mighty warriors, going on with Scripture, these three warriors broke through the camp of the Philistines. They drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord, for he said, The Lord forbid that I should do this. Can I drink the blood of the men that went at risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. And so here, with a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem, David had an aha moment. He learns that people listen to every word he says, even the sighs that he sighs, and they do as he asks. They do as he wishes. They do for him. And it's here that David learns how to be a good king, the king that God wanted to rule over Israel. You see, David realized that it's not enough that these men love him, provide for him, would die for him. It's not enough to be king of the people. Anyone can do that. What's important is to be king for the people. And so David poured out the water. David realized that he needed to love them, that he needed to provide for them, that he would even die for them. And it's here that David learns how to be a sacrificial king for love of his people. Here at the well of Bethlehem, the seed, the hope, The image of what a godly king of Israel looks like, one who rules in power, yes, but one who reigns in goodness. This is where this image is birthed. And this is an image that lingers in all of our hearts, this longing for such a king, for such a leader, for such a ruler, It comes down through history and is born in every generation, this longing. We hold this image in our hearts, don't we? We sigh for this prototype, this idea being governed well, governed righteously of living in a peaceable kingdom. This is our longing too, to this very day. And we need to know that we will be forever confounded if we try to meet this longing for this ruler in any place other than the manger of Bethlehem. It is here that this longing is met. I want to go and read the rest of the prophecy in Micah. You see, it didn't end there with what was quoted in Matthew, what I read earlier. There's more to it. So let's come back to Micah chapter 5. Listen to the word of the Lord speaking to Israel through the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, One one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time the one of peace. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless streets, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. My fuller, Uh, My mentor at Fuller Seminary is a wonderful man named Richard Mao. And I had the great honor and joy of sitting with Richard Mao and learning from him directly. And Rich Mao used to say this phrase, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him tonight. And Rich used to say, imagine that, imagine that. Imagine all the hopes and fears of all the people from the beginning of time to the end of time. Imagine all the people like Jacob and Rachel, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, the prophet Micah, all of the people that were lost, the ten tribes, all of the prayers that filled buckets like rainwater, all of those prayers, hopes and fears gathered, being poured out over this one person. The hopes and fears of all the people, your hopes, my hopes, your hopes and fears, my hopes and fears, all being met in this baby, lying in a manger, born King of Kings and Lord of Lord. I mentioned at the beginning that Bethlehem was the setting of three great love stories, but we now realize that it's actually the setting of four great love stories because it holds within it the greatest love story, the story of God's love for us, for all humanity, from the beginning to the end of time. It's a great love story because it requires a response from us. You can't just hear a love story like these and go get popcorn. No, you need to respond. And this story, this love of God story requires a response from us. You see, it's not enough that Jesus was born there. This requires that Jesus is born here in our hearts every day, here and now. Bethlehem is a witness to this love in the world. I want to share with you a story. I had the great privilege of traveling to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem. I had gone in the late 90s. I had gone on a mission trip with a team here from Beller Church, and we had gone to Egypt and served with our partner church there in Cairo. And on the way back, we stopped in Israel, and we were able to meet with some people in Bethlehem. We actually stayed in Bethlehem, which is now uh, in Palestinian territory. It's separated from Jerusalem by a great barrier wall. So there we were in Bethlehem, this team coming from, from Cairo. We were a little bit uh, logged, uh, jet-lagged, and, and tired. But I'll never forget these two men that told us their story of this great love there as we sat in Bethlehem. These two men introduced themselves. One was a Palestinian Christian, and the other was a Messianic Jew, Each of them started their lives not being Christians. They were born again into the story of Jesus, a Palestinian Christian, a Messianic Jew, a Zionist Jewish man. And so when they came to Christ, there was a call on their lives that they described that this enmity between Palestine and Israel could not exist any longer, that they needed to do something to be reconciled because of the call of Christ upon their lives. And so they started a small ministry to the men of Bethlehem called Masalaha, which is the Arabic word for reconciliation. And so they would bring friends of theirs. They would gather and they would get to know each other. They'd have coffee and donuts. They'd share stories. But they said something not so funny happened when they brought out the Bible, Whenever they brought out the Bible to have a Bible study, these men, these men from very different groups, very different genealogies and histories would use the Bible to proof text their claims to the Holy Land. They weaponized the Bible and used it against each other. And so these two men that started this ministry took the Bible away from them. They said, you're not ready for this word of God to you yet. We have more work to do. And so they decided that what needed to be done was a retreat, a weekend retreat with these men that would not let this enmity be put to rest. And so they started calling around, looking for a campground. They wanted a campground saying, we're gonna bring 20 men. There's 10 that are Jewish and there's 10 that are Palestinian and we'd like a campsite. Well, no one in the area would rent a campsite to them. They heard this idea and they thought it was an awful idea and no one would let them have a campsite. So they finally found someplace down by the Red Sea, a Palestinian-owned campsite. And this guy said, well, you guys can come, but we are going to have an armed Palestinian guard around your camp to protect the property when everything goes south for you guys. And they said, fine, that's awesome. Bring the Palestinian armed guard. And so they went, 10 Palestinians, 10 Jewish men, all learning how to love Christ, to tell his story. They say that on the first night they arrived on Friday night, there were 10 distinct groups of two, and the Palestinian guard was encircling them on the outside of their camp. The next day, Saturday morning, the sun rose and they had this idea that they would take one man from each group and put those two men together on a camel. And here's where they explained to us Westerners that camels are not like horses. Camels don't let themselves be guided by you. Camels know how to survive in the desert. And so the camel will go where the camel wants to go and you need to survive the camel and the desert, and you'd better learn how to rely on each other. And so they sent out 10 groups of two on camels each and sent them into the day. And that night came back 10 groups of two. And they gathered around the, the campsite, their campfire, and they told their stories. They laughed and they cried and they told how they needed each other. And that night, the Palestinian guard came closer to try to hear what these ten groups of two were saying. The next day was Sunday morning, and as the sun rose, so they tell their story, there was one group of 20 men. One group of men who rose to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel and the God of Palestine, the God of Jesus Christ. And that morning, the Palestinian guard came into their camp, put down their weapons and said, who are you guys? And that was the day that they shared their faith with the Palestinian guard. You see, Bethlehem is born in each of us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and yet Jesus gives this light to us to bear in this world. And so as we come to the last stanza of this wonderful Christmas carol, may we say this prayer together. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide in us, our Lord, Emmanuel. May God bless you this Christmas.